Hebrews, verse by verse. This is part 57. Next week, we'll finish the book of Hebrews. This morning, what a Christ-centered heart starts to look like. What a Christ-centered heart starts to look like. We finished verse 14 last Sunday. We're picking it up at 15. Hebrews 13, 15 through 19. Through him then, the him is Jesus, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. So he's obviously had a past relationship with this congregation, and he wants that to be restored. Let's pray. Forgive us, Lord, for even one moment when we think that we can explain these words and when we think that we can hear these words based on our own intelligence and not acknowledging our need for the Holy Spirit to come and work on both sides of this pulpit that this is, this is a, a spiritual practice that we're engaging in, not just an intellectual one. An intellectual one can bring understanding, which is a good first step, but only your Holy Spirit can produce feeding. And so we want to all just bow at the feet of Jesus as little children and say, come, and, and, and break thou the bread of life to our hearts this day. And for things that impede the work of your spirit, if we've come, any of us, into this church with dishonesty in our hearts, if we've come with pride in our hearts, if we've come with sexual sin and uncleanness, wrong relationships, if we've come cherishing ambitions that don't align with your kingdom, all of those things will choke the word. And so, Jesus, maybe what we need to do, first of all, is just plead your grace and blood on all of our hearts.
on all of our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In our last study, we uh, went over, I'm going to read these verses. We went over these verses, and they're difficult verses, and I'm not teaching from them again, but I want to show you a link. Here's what we worked through last week. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. So he's thinking now about all of these passages that we've studied where um, sacrifice is brought to the altar, things eaten, things cleansed, the sacrifice, what was left, would be consumed by the family and and that whole ritualistic procedure in the Old Testament. He says, It's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We, now he's talking to the church, we have an altar. And you can see the imagery. He's thinking about the sacrifices. He's thinking about the process with the priest and the slain. He's thinking about all that. And he says, we, us, right here, we, we too, we have, we have an altar from which those who serve in the tent, this is that tabernacle in the wilderness, have no right to eat. You, you, can't, you can't combine redemptive grace in Jesus with any other redemptive system. That's relevant info. Because there's all sorts of religions that claim pardon and peace and a road to God and inner tranquility and all sorts of blessings. And what this text says is that you you can't, if you're going to go down that road, if you're looking for another way of coming to God, then you, you can't have what Jesus provides. He doesn't mix. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places, now he's thinking again that Old Testament system, by a high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. That's because if I bring that lamb, the high priest takes it and sacrifices it. The remains have to be buried outside the camp. Remember why? Because what's pictured there is my my sin. My sin. It didn't actually happen. It's a picture. My sin is in that sacrifice. So it's unclean now. My guilt is on that animal. And so you can't just bury it in your backyard. It's got to go outside the camp. And there's a picture there of how Jesus actually bore our sins. A lot of people deny that these days. That's what, this makes no sense if that isn't true. Jesus also suffered outside the gate. He became a curse for us. That's what Paul says in the book of Galatians. In order to sanctify the people through his own blood, and therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. There's a, there's a cost to following Jesus. All right. Why did I read that? Well, the central idea in this text, the 9 to 13 text, is, is we have an altar right there. I know it's a little messy. Right there. Can you see it? We have an altar which accomplishes what uh, those Old Testament sacrifices 
didn't actually accomplish. They just pictured and got people ready for. And so these verses close with this reminder. I got something buzzing around me here. Go up there. There's lots of people out there. So these verses close with the reminder that following Jesus means bearing bearing the reproach that he endured. It, uh, if you're, if you're going to start saying stuff like this, that if you start saying, mix another religious system and you lose the benefits of Christ, Christ stands alone in his redemptive work. If you start saying that, you, there's a reproach, there's an unpopularity. You'll be called intolerant, narrow-minded, bigoted, hateful, all sorts of things. That's, that's the reproach. Jesus endured it. And if you're going to follow him, he's saying, that's, I'm sorry, that's your lot. You don't just get his pardon, peace, blessing. You won't sing any worship choruses about bearing his reproach. But it's part of the package. Now we come to today's text. So what happens when, when we come to this altar? We have an altar, 1310, where there's pardon. What happens when we come to the altar of Christ's shed blood? Well, we get forgiveness, to be sure. But what else? How, how do... What, what, what comes next? How do lives start to take the shape of an authentic sanctification, Christ-likeness? After Jesus bears my own sin... Okay... After Jesus bears my sin and the wrath of Father God, what else does the blood of Jesus do to the rest of my life? It erases my sin. What else does it do? That's today's study. There's a reminder and then three commands. That's where we're going. Point number one. We are reminded all the saving blessings of God come only through Jesus Christ. You see it in that 15th verse. Here are the big words. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Now, in just a minute in our text, our writer is going to command these Christians into deeds of generosity and compassion to others. That's where he's going to go. We'll see it in a minute. But first, he feels compelled to to point out, before he tells us, be generous, give, share what you have. That's where he's going, but he can't just go there. He has to stop and say, through him, let us praise. Through him, let us be generous and, and compassionate. He just feels compelled to point out that even, even if they do share what they have with those in need, and even if they do have compassion to those who are hurting, that, that even those deeds have no eternal value unless they're done through, through him. Through him let us offer praise. Through him let us be generous and share what we have. Just as only the high priest... 
He's been making this comparison all the time. He moves from the Old Testament picture to the New Testament fulfillment. It's this whole book is comparison. Just as only the high priest could provide the sacrifice of atonement, so only Jesus, our new covenant high priest, only he can provide approach to God. That's what that altar picture is all about. Imagine in the Old Testament, there you are, Jake and Sarah, and you, you know you have to come and, alter, and offer the sacrifice. So you get the lamb and you come. And there's, there's the temple and there's the high priest. And you just say, no, I think I'm just going to do this myself. I got a knife, I got an animal. My heart is one wanting forgiveness. Will that work? Can I just do this myself? Answer, what do you think? Absolutely not. It's great that your heart is in it. But you also have to have the high priest. (laughs) And that's how it has to be done. And in the new covenant, there's pardon, there's grace, there's forgiveness, there's mercy for the worst of sinners. Hearts are changed into generous, compassionate hearts. but, But only through him. His blood is the new covenant sacrifice. I, I, I can't get mercy and pardon. I can't connect with God through my own moral goodness. I can give all my money away. Read 1 Corinthians 13. I can give my body to be burned. There's such a tendency. Here's why I'm laboring this a bit. There's such a tendency on the part of many contemporary Christian writers and leaders to make the atoning significance of the death of Jesus all horizontal. They horizontalize the work of the cross into, it just becomes a demonstration of God's nonviolent response to mistreatment. Applied to us, the cross means be loving and be forgiving to those who wrong you. Return grace for cruelty. The world would be a better place there. And the Bible does hold up the death of Jesus as a kind of example. We don't need to shy away from that. You can read about it in 1 Peter 2, 21 to 23. Peter writes to the church. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. And he doesn't talk now about pardon, forgiveness, any of that. That's not what he talks about here. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you, here it is, an example. So that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So he didn't do anything wrong. He was absolutely innocent. And people were mean. He was reviled, but he did not revile in return. He suffered, but he did not threaten. Peter says, now, here's this persecuted church to whom Peter writes. And he says, now, there's, there's the death of Jesus on the cross. Be like that. An example. He uses that very word. So there's nothing wrong with saying that. As long as you don't say just that. The Bible also holds up the death of Jesus as a victory over the powers of darkness. You can see that in Colossians. 
Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So this is, again, this is solid New Testament truth. Jesus did openly defeat principalities and powers in his death on the cross. And it's fine to say that as long as that's not all you say about the cross. I'm sorry to labor on this on a summer Sunday morning. My reason for doing so, it's right in this text, and we'll see it in just a minute. But I find it so dangerous and so foolish the way many teachers, including Greg Boyd and Brian Zahn and Bruxy, they will teach that in recognizing these other views, Jesus died as an example, Jesus died defeating principalities and powers, they will say, you can YouTube it, I'm not making this up. They will say that if you accept those things, then the view of Jesus bearing our sins and the wrath of God, you have to throw that out. It's an either or. All of these writers teach that in recognizing these other facets of the atonement, it's required that one reject the massive, overarching, penal substitutionary teaching of the New Testament, where Jesus bears the Father's holy wrath against my sin on the cross. You can, you can, uh, you can see it. Bruxy, he clearly comes out and states that these other scriptural explanations lead him to conclude that penal substitution is wrong. He says it's wrong. And that saddens me because he has a teaching voice among evangelical students. These views of the atonement aren't either-or views. Yes, Peter says it's an example. Yes, Paul says he died defeating principalities and powers. But these views are all combined in the New Testament. But by far, the dominant teaching of the New Testament is that Jesus bore my sins and Father God's just wrath in his body on the cross. That doesn't mean I must reject other biblical ideas. Can we please think a little deeper and move past this. Did Jesus die as an example? Yes. Did he defeat principalities and powers? Yes. Is that all that happened on the cross? No. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus said he came to give his life a ransom for many. And so our writer, he makes his purpose, the purpose of the atonement, consistently and repeatedly clear. Christ shed blood did something deeper and bigger than provide an example. It did that, but much more than that. It did more than promote compassion. It did that, but it did more than that. It did more than demonstrate God's triumph over the forces of darkness. It did that, but it did more than that. Here's what it did. It's an altar, he says. It provided access. That's what an altar does. Every Jewish reader of these words knew what an altar was all about. They lived their lives bringing sacrifices to altars. Nobody had to explain that to them. 
The altar meant access. It meant the removal of guilt and sin. It proved that they were disqualified for approaching apart from the sacrifice of another. That's what that animal pictured. Only the most stubbornly blind reader could miss this emphasis throughout the letter to the Hebrews. So, before the moral instruction, before the command to be loving and compassionate, the text jumps off the page. Here's how it comes out of the gate. It's all through him. Through him. 15. There is no sustainable path to pleasing God in any of my good deeds without this starting point, without this altar. And so our writer wants us to think through his logic. Here's what it means. It means that anything I do for God, anything I do for God, You put your offering in the plate. You teach the Sunday school class. I preach sermons. We do Bible studies. We, we, anything we do for God is rooted in what he has already done for me or it's worthless. Nothing else reaches God. Not even my most charitable, compassionate impulses. That's why through him comes at the beginning of verse 15. His redemptive action anchors and generates my response. It answers the question. It answers the question that you'll be asked. What about, what about really, really morally good people? Surely... All that has to count for something. I mean, when God looks at Joe's life and he sees all these wonderful good deeds and very few bad deeds, isn't that like isn't that how we get to heaven? And our writer says, Well, no. And here's why. My my here's where I stand as a as a human being. You stand in the same place, but I'll just talk about me. It's not just my lying and my anger and my pride that need the grace of Jesus. Okay? It's, it's my worship and my teaching and my offerings. The very best things I do are terribly inadequate without the shed blood of Jesus. Did everybody get that? It's through him. <laughs> through him. Through him. You can't be good enough to qualify. And he wants that anchor firmly established before he moves on in the text. I took too long, sorry. Point number two. The lips of a sanctified life speak praise. I love this. Look at Hebrews 3.15. Through him, then, let us, let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise to God. That is... The fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. These are not the words of a worship leader in a charismatic church. These are the studied, biblically drenched words of a very deep thinking theological mind. 
and, and, and the first thing mentioned in response to a consideration of God's atoning grace, the first thing mentioned is praise. And lest we mumble something under our church tradition breath about, well, let's just worship him and praise him in our heart. Everyone in their own way, just with their heart. Our writer makes his idea more specific still, as though almost anticipating that mindset. He says, oh yeah, and and when I say praise, I, I mean your mouth. The fruit of your lips. I mean your voice box. I mean, I mean making your praise and gratitude to Jesus known not just to yourself, but to everybody else. That's what those words acknowledge his name mean. Every person ought to be a person of verbal praise. And it has nothing to do with being Pentecostal. It has to do with Bible. It has to do with obedience. Three. The cultivation of a praise-filled life can't be left to the emotions, but must be cultivated and nourished continually. Let me give you a clean version of that verse. Through him, that's the anchor still, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. In, in 13.1, if you went back, if you have a Bible there, our writer urged brotherly love to continue. And, and this, today's text, 15, it's the third time he's stressed the unpopular notion of continuing. The idea that starting isn't the same as completing. Starting isn't the same as continuing. So, so through him then, let us, let us continually do this. So the idea here is Spiritual life isn't self-sustaining. You, you, you can't grow spiritually the way you grow physically. You, you, can, <laughs> you can put on weight without thinking very much about it. Has anybody else discovered that? You can put on weight without thinking about it at all. But you can't put on Christ like that. It will never happen. In this 15th verse, our writer exposes the way my mind wanders from praise-filled gratitude. Like an unanchored boat that just when the currents come and we just get pulled in all sorts of directions, drawn away from praise and thankfulness, mistreatment, 
it can cause bitterness. I told the story years ago. It's a true story. A guy that left this church when we were in the other building and went and visited him and talked to him, asked him what his problem was, and here's what he said. He said, when Christians don't get their own way, they're exactly like everybody else. Kind of true, though, isn't it? Mistreatment can draw us away from praise and thankfulness. Trials can cause sorrow. Worries can cause fear. And then you have the other end of the spectrum. Probably the more dangerous end of the spectrum. Earthly treasures. Cultural popularity. Recreation. Sports can draw our hearts away from glorying in Christ to being seduced and distracted by all sorts of false, fleeting delights. It's never easy to live in this world. Verse 14 says, like we have no lasting city. To live like a refugee. And so now we start to form a proper biblical framework for worship. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips. Why? Who cares? Why is it so important? Praise and worship has little to do with emotional release. Verbal praise and worship is not the the territory of just the naturally, you know, there's those people that just like raising their hands and jumping up and down. They get all excited. Fine. There's those emotional types. No, it's not about that. Do this continually. Why? Because, Because through praise and worship, through Christ, you establish the resetting of your heart and its delights. And its desires. You need to do this all the time because you won't stay there without this. Do this continually. Praise with our lips in a service like this. It's primarily commanded by God to protect my heart from false delights. I need it. It's not like God is up there saying, I'm really insecure. Could you people just please tell me how wonderful I am? Here, pat me on the back. Has nothing to do with it. It's, it's me. It's what I need to do. Four. Christian goodness runs deeper than mere humanitarianism. 15 and 16. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God... That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not, do not neglect. In other words, this is easy to do. You can get away with not doing this and just tell yourself that, it's, that I'm not a missionary. You know, I don't live in a monastery. I don't, don't neglect what I'm telling you, he says. You might not think this is important. It's more important than you think. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. Why does God give any of us more than we actually need? There's only two answers to that. One, you tell me what you think the right answer is. There's three. Why does God give any of us, and don't think about somebody else, think about you. Why does God give any of us more than we actually need? One, 
so we can have a whole bunch more stuff than we really need. Two, so we can store it up. Three, because there are other people who are in desperate need and the kingdom needs it. Now, I'm going to say, A, B, or C, which do you think is the right answer? How many say C? How many say C? I really want to see everyone's hand go up. Jesus talked about a man. Remember the parable? It's not very politically correct and it's not very flattering. Jesus never was. But a guy that had barns, bank accounts, houses, wealth, land. And he said, what am I going to do? I got, I got more stuff than I, I know. I think what God would want is I'll tear down these little barns and I'll build bigger ones so that I'll have lots of stuff for a long, long time. And then God speaks to him. We shouldn't say it, I guess, but God does. He says, you're, you know what? You're a fool. You, you are a knucklehead. Do you really think that's why I gave you all this? Now we can trace. Do not neglect to do good, 16. Share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now we get a framework now. Now we have a proper setting to look at doing good, 16, and sharing what we have. Everything about my life must flow through the atoning work of Christ. Through him, see it at the beginning of 15? And this includes my worship and praise and this includes my material generosity those two things the very best things I can do through my own instincts will always be spiritually barren it has to be through him everything about my life needs redeeming grace including my good deeds including my compassionate deeds And the reason we need to rethink this is it answers one of those tough questions that critics of faith often ask. It explains why morally good people can be so completely spiritually lost. Morality outside of Christ can help other people but can never glorify God. So here's how this plays out. We're almost done. Gratitude to Jesus. Look at the text. 15... Kindness to others, 16. And now we can see why, exactly why, our Lord framed the two greatest commandments the way he did. So, look at the order. It's all through Christ, 15, the first two words. Through Christ, praise, worship, devotion to God. Through Christ, 16, kindness, generosity, love to fellow man. Okay? See the order? Now, what I want to look at now is, is that consistent throughout the New Testament? Is it always presented that way? And I think that it is. Here's words everybody knows from Jesus. Someone came to him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said, this is Jesus, he said, "You you shall love the Lord your God. This is all vertical, nothing horizontal. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. 
And I, I think the guy who asked this question turns around, starts walking away, and Jesus says, wait a minute. And a second, he didn't ask for a second. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, so this, can you read that? Vertical? Oops, oops. Vertical? This? Horizontal? The order? It's hardly ever stated. It's hardly ever stated that Jesus answers the question put to him. There is a greatest commandment. There really is. And Jesus says so. Here's the greatest commandment. He states the second greatest because, because, because first, it must be kept second. It can never be made first. It must be kept second and it is the fruit of the first. It's the fruit of the first and it's empty apart from it. Give everybody all the food, clothing, shelter, education. Teach them to read. Rid the world of disease. They all die and are eternally lost. What have you done? But if you keep the first commandment first and then recognize, Jesus says, but I really can't, I really can't give you the first commandment without giving you the second because th- this is the fruit of the first commandment. In other words, it's a myth that you get so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. You can be distracted so you're no earthly good. But if you're truly heavenly minded, you will be the most earthly good. And the Christian mission around the globe has proven that to be true. Do you know if you go back 100 years, virtually every university was, was, had a president who was a minister? They were all founded by Christians. The hardest part of watching over someone's soul. Look at 17 through 19. This is the last point. My dad used to teach homiletics in the Bible school in Saskatoon, and someone asked him in a class, put his hand up, and said, How many points should a sermon have? And my dad quickly said, At least one. The hardest part of watching over someone else's soul. Look at 17 through 19. Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping, they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. This is the second time, the second time our writer has given his attention to the spiritual leaders of the people. He says they have one, they have a lot of responsibilities, but one in particular. They have one particular responsibility, soul watching. They are keeping watch over your souls. Now, 
if you think back, he's actually told us already the key way they have of doing this. He said that in 13.7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So this helps explain what our writer means in verse 17 when he says they, they have to look out for your souls. We can see that looking out for the souls of others doesn't mean necessarily keeping them all happy. It has to do with helping them care more about the things they don't care enough about. Watching over souls through teaching the word means helping them to care more about things that they might not even see as important yet. Watching over the souls of others has to do with using the word and showing them things that they might think are inconvenient right now. So the word, watching over the souls of others with the word means you're frequently going to be seen as a bother. So, this will be what faithful soul watchers do. They will replace false notions of success and power and security and happiness with the counterweight of biblical truth. And, and let me tell you something about that process. People don't always appreciate leaders meddling with their souls. Does that surprise you? People have rights. People have tastes. Frequently they have egos. My experience is people love to see leaders firing the word of God at the sins of others. But they don't like it quite as much when it slices into their own self-interests. And they're not crazy about the one who brings that word either. I've been here 35 years and almost this church has been way better to me than I've ever deserved. But I have heard things like this in the last 35 years. Who are you to judge me? That lady in my office. Who died and made you God? You're not perfect either, you know. Three years ago, I had a lady sit in my office and told me I was the Antichrist. I didn't know whether to be flattered by that or, you know, like that's a pretty prominent. It would be easier... It would be easier not to mess with other people's souls. It would be easier not to teach through passages that our own courts and lawmakers find offensive. I actually give up looking at, you know, when something gets posted that I've preached on gay marriage or transgenderism, I've kind of given up looking at the responses because it's just depressing. So just be quiet. Just be quiet. Show video clips from Everybody Loves Raymond and talk about life and have lattes and let's all go home happy. Leave it alone. 
And then there's a problem. There are these other words. As those who will have to give an account. So, so here's, here's where the text leaves word proclaimers. There are two choices. You can choose to have people hate you, or you can face the judgment of God. I've lived a lot of my life right there. When you think it through, it's no wonder. It's almost humorous. When you think that through, it's no wonder here are his next words. Pray for us. Pray for us. Pray for pastors, all pastors, teachers, missionaries, workers. They often live between two frightening choices. No, no pastor is, is any use to a church or the Lord unless he can keep some kind of a clear conscience before God's word. I don't like it either. This is what it says. I'm not happy with it either. This is what it says. I would far rather never have to say this in a church, but this is what it says. No one likes to hear things that rebuke our engrafted tastes and priorities, but it's our souls. It's our souls that need watching. And so let me close this way. Treasure, treasure the smile of Jesus over anything else in this world and you will have the kind of perspective that will keep you safe eternally. Treasure the smile of Jesus more than you treasure anything else in this world. And you will always be safe. And next week we're going to finish the book of Hebrews. And everyone said? Now see, when you say amen... Was it because we're finishing the book of Hebrews? Amen! Let's pray.